Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark? Um, if you're sick of hearing that, this is the last time. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Uh, we'll be reading chapter 15, verse 42, through uh, chapter 16, verse 8. 1542 through 168 is what we'll be reading this morning. So let's do that now. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are grateful to you for your love and for your grace through your Son. Give us ears to hear you speak and hearts to believe and embrace your truth for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It strikes me, uh, I, I love how he says, Mark says they felt trembling and astonishment. And that word for astonishment is also translated awe or amazement. In Matthew's account, he says that they felt joy and fear. I love how these authors, they're reaching to capture how these people felt at this incredible moment. I was trying to put myself in their shoes, and I was thinking if there's a time that I've ever felt both of these things at the same time. And uh, it's easy for me to think of a time where I felt one of these emotions, but to feel both of them is rare. There's one, I think there's one time that I felt something like this. October 9th, 2018, when my wife Audrey gave birth to my daughter Evergreen. It was such a unique experience in my life. And I truly felt trembling and amazement. I felt fear and joy. 
Audrey was so vulnerable, and Evergreen was so fragile. I felt so small and powerless in that situation. Everything could, have, could go wrong in those moments. And I, and I kept going back and forth between fear and joy, between trembling and amazement, and often feeling it all at once in this unique and overwhelming way. And it was, it was, a, it was really full of paradoxes, this, this experience. It was, I mean, it was, first it was this really, you know, physical and earthy experience, but at the same time, it's this, one of the most, like, transcendent and sacred experiences I've experienced. This new life emerged into the world, and I'm somehow a part of this and called into this new way of life that I don't even really have categories for understanding right now, and, it, and that caused more fear and anxiety. And it's life-altering, really. And it gives me a new appreciation for life as amazing and incredible, but also so mortal and frail. And that event, it marked me. But even more so does this new presence with me, this new little life with me, and this new call on my life. And the, and the, the presence of my wife, who's now a partner in this calling, and, and who I have a new appreciation for as well. She's like, you know, like the queen of the world. She's like a superhero, so brave and, and fearless and strong and loving to go through something like that. And, and, and now she's with me in this. And, and I'm telling you, this is the kind of experience that these disciples had in an even more profound way. And while we weren't there to, receive, to, to witness it, we received their testimony. And we share in its reality. It's a claim that affects all of us. To the broken, it proclaims hope. And to the rebellious, it calls you to submit. And to those broken by the rebellion, it offers forgiveness. For all of us, it says transformation is possible. And our greatest enemies are only hollow shells of what they claim to be because they have been defeated by our king of love and grace. And see, for me, the birth of my daughter was incredibly significant. Both the event itself and what it means for the course of my life. And many of us have experienced something so significant that it begins a new chapter in your story. And it marks a turning point in your life after which nothing is quite like it was. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of those realities. But this event marked not just the turning point in one person's story, but a turning point in the history of the world. C.S. Lewis said of Jesus, He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death, and everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. It's impossible to overstate the importance and the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the turning point of human history, and it's the centerpiece of the Christian faith. I mean, if you read the sermons in the book of Acts, that is the central message of Christianity that the apostles preached. The resurrection and, and you know, the consequences of that were the good news, the gospel that they preached. Because think about it. If you're in a well, 
You don't just need someone to come down and help you make the most out of your life in the well and be with you there. Maybe bring you a pillow, you know. No, you need someone to come down with the ability to bring you out of the well. And so God has come down into our fallen natural world, down into humanity. And he's come up again, pulling us up with him. The resurrection is the beginning, the the inauguration of our hope. Our hope that the world as it now stands with all of its death and decay and injustice and tragedy is not how it will remain. Christ's resurrection, it proclaims the restoration that we all ache for. It's good news. Shocking. Hard to believe. Life-altering good news. And this morning I want to talk about this good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in particular that it is true and that it matters for our life. I think both of those things Mark wants us to wrestle with as we read this this morning. You know, Mark's gospel, it ends rather abruptly. In fact, so abruptly that later scribes added an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added later. Modern translations of the Bible, they're based on the earliest and most trustworthy manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. And so if you have one of these translations, like the NIV or the ESV or pretty much any one you probably have, you know, it'll have this little note telling you that Mark's gospel originally ended at verse 8 in chapter 16, even though it seems very abrupt. But Mark is a brilliant storyteller, and I believe he's intentionally ended his gospel this way. Because all throughout this book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, haven't they? And, and, and remember the story in the middle? And then now at the end here? Mark's acknowledging just how surprising and incredible this claim really is. And he wants you, as you read, to wrestle with it for yourself. I think this bare-bones narrative, it recreates for us this category-shattering experience that it really was. All of a sudden, you have to rethink your whole life and the whole world if this is true. And this is why I think it's so brilliant, because most of Mark's readers reading this have not have heard the announcement of the resurrection, but they don't see Jesus physically with them. And in this way, they're in the same position as these women, aren't they? Will they respond with faith or with fear? And we're in that same position, too. Will you run away like these disciples? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as the risen king and reorganize your life around him? Will you respond to the resurrection with, with doubt and incredulity and cynicism? Or will you see it as the life-changing hope that it really is? And Mark's gospel, the way he's written it, it confronts our common misconception about the past that Uh, Many people today, we just assume that the people of the first century were incredibly gullible and superstitious, and they would receive anything you, you know, fed them, and they were ready to believe in a resurrection from the dead. But that's ridiculous. It's a form of what some have called chronological snobbery, thinking that we're better than the people of the past. I mean, the whole gospel of Luke and the book of Acts don't make any sense if that's true, because Luke says that he wrote them in order to argue with well-researched evidence for the truthfulness of these things to persuade a guy named Theophilus about 30 years after they happened. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes about the resurrection, 
to the church in Corinth, he takes time to give evidence for his claim. He lists eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive because he was writing only 20 years after it happened. And, and like I said, we see throughout the Gospel of Mark how hard this idea was to grasp for them. Even after Jesus clearly told them at least three times. The people of the first century were not any more prone to believe a report of the resurrection than we are. Not only because their experience like ours tells them people don't rise from the dead, that just doesn't happen, but also because it undermined their own worldview. Both Greeks and Jews, the Greco-Roman worldview, for instance, they believed the soul would live on in liberation from the body. So it would be incredibly, uh, you know, undesirable, as well as preposterous, to think that a body would be united to a soul once more. And the Jews, they believed that in a very particular kind of resurrection that would happen at the end of the age altogether, and so it would have been a God-dishonoring exaltation of any one person to say that they rose from the dead first before everybody else. And yet, despite all of this incredulity, the church was established, and it grew, and it flourished because of the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. Any student of the ancient world knows that this is a well-attested historical fact, that the church did indeed grow despite opposition, and their message was the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not saying they were right yet, but I'm saying that was their message, and it began a movement that changed the world forever. The preaching of the resurrection, the willingness of the apostles to suffer for it, and the rise of the church are historical facts that no Serious historian denies regardless of his faith. So there must be a significant reason for all of this. And I believe the reason is that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. One thing I think pretty much all people can reasonably agree on is that the tomb was empty. However it got that way, it must have been empty because there was not just philosophical opposition to this idea. There was also, you know, the government was against it. There was governmental and authoritative opposition to it. Because think about it. The Jewish authorities didn't want, uh, you know, people claiming Jesus had risen from the grave. They were the ones that had him executed. And the Roman government, they're the ones that pulled the trigger, if you will. And so they didn't want anybody that they had put to death, being, you know, claimed to be brought back to life especially if they were saying that they're Lord, right? Usurping their authority like Jesus was doing. All this to say that if the tomb wasn't empty, all these authorities would have had to do is get his body and display it to squash this movement that they didn't want to happen and destroy the claim that he had risen from the grave. But they didn't do that. Why? Because they couldn't. Because the tomb was empty. And some have suggested that Jesus' disciples stole the body. And we see in the scriptures that's exactly what the Jewish authorities bribed the guards to say happened. But that would suggest that the disciples were intentionally preaching a lie. That would mean that the disciples were risking their lives for what they knew to be a fraud. Let me read you how Paul described his life and the way he lived as an apostle in, in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, if I knew it was a lie, I would have, they would have lashed me once, and I'd been like, okay, you know, I, I'm, I was lying. Because, you know, to live that kind of life for something you know to be a lie is as contrary to human nature as is a resurrection from the dead. And I'll spare you all of the other explanations people come up with to try and explain away the empty tomb. They just get sillier and sillier, I promise. The tomb was empty because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And Mark ends his gospel with this fact. And the apostles in their letters in the New Testament, they, they talk about all the implications of this. But Mark just leaves us with this incredible fact of the empty tomb. Because he knows that this good news changes everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us this list of hypothetical negatives that are the case if Christ is not raised from the dead. He says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We misrepresent God. Our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. Those who have died trusting Christ have eternally perished. We have no hope beyond this life, and we are to be pitied more than everyone. That's bleak. But then comes the most significant but in Scripture. He says, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that fact, it effectively flips all of those negatives into positives. So if we do that, we see that our preaching and our faith are fruitful. We honor God with our testimony. Our faith is well-founded. We are saved and freed from our sins. Those who have died trusting Christ live eternally. We have great hope beyond this life, and our lives are eternally enviable. The resurrection is good news, and it matters. It matters for our life, and it makes our life matter. It gives us hope, and it places a calling on our life. This hope and this calling, they're what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. They're closely tied together. Uh, Paul connects both of these realities in a passage I really like in Colossians 3. He says, he says this, he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then he says two verses later, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly. You see how he connects both the present reality and the future reality of the resurrection to how we live. I mean, he connects our present union with Christ. You know, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, to seeking the things that are above. Set your minds on heaven rather than on earth. And then he, he connects our hope of being glorified with Christ at his coming to putting to death what is earthly in you. And if you continue reading that chapter, he gives a whole host of practical commands uh, based on the foundation of Christ's resurrection. And we normally think of the cross, you know, Christ's death, as what freed us from sin. But the resurrection is what makes the cross victorious. 
I've heard it said that the, the resurrection is uh, the Father's amen to Christ. It is finished. And I've always loved the way the Apostle Peter put it. In one of his letters, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. Because our salvation is union with Christ, being intimately and, and mysteriously united to him, if we're merely united to a dead man, then we're just dead. But if we're united to the one who died in our place and then victoriously rose again, never to die again, well, then we're what Paul says, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Christ's resurrection that is the basis for our new life. And you may be familiar with that text in Romans 6 that, that uh, is often read at baptisms. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Christian life is the resurrection life. We died to our old sinful selves because he died for our sin. And now we live because he rose again to new life and conquered death. We are born again to a living hope. A hope that is living and active and calls us to participate in this great hope. And this idea, it makes me think of the movie WALL-E, which is one of the greatest animated films, I, I think, in my opinion. And I don't know if many of you see it, but that's okay. I'll tell you about it. It's, it's actually, it's written and it's directed by a, uh, by a Christian and it's full of Christian imagery. And the movie, it's based in a future where earth is uninhabitable, overflowing with garbage. All of humanity has left earth and lives on a spaceship and everyone is obese there and enslaved to technology and they're literally just floating through life as fat, purposeless consumers. And Wally, he's a trash compactor robot, and he lives all alone on Earth, and he's super cute, and he collects things that he likes, and one day, he finds this little seedling, and he keeps it in an old boot. And, he, and he, 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 it's a seedling, you get it? A plant on a, light, on a planet that hasn't been conducive for life in many, many years. Nothing can live there. But he finds this seedling. And through a series of events and a really cute robot love story with, with Wally and a girl robot named Eve, the, the, the seedling gets back to the, the humans on the uh, spaceship. And it begins to spark hope. And people slowly start being brought out of their mindless, slave-like, comatose existence. And they start to discover what the world was once like. And they start to hope for what it can be again. And they're caught up in this vision of a new reality moving them to action and to build relationships again. And to love and to work and to hope. And it's all sparked by this little seedling that says the world has a future that says everything is not as it seems. How can you believe that a garbage-ridden wasteland is worth inhabiting when our life is so comfortable here on the spaceship? Well, there's this seedling, 
in a boot. And there's this empty tomb in Jerusalem that says everything is not as it seems. There is hope in this fallen, broken world, a living hope that shocks us out of our purposelessness and calls us into a new way of life because the, without the hope of the resurrection of Jesus and imperishable life of joy with him, we will be compelled to treat this life as a place where we just have to squeeze out as much pleasure and comfort as we can. And the few risks that we do take will be in service of giving us the most enjoyable experience here. And we'll only make those decisions and we'll only love those people that improve our lives here. Because there's nothing else. The Apostle Paul sums it up by saying, you know, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But deep down, most of us ache for more than that. We want to live lives that go beyond selfish self-indulgence, lives marked by sacrificial love. And the resurrection, it, it frees us to live that kind of life, you see? Tim Keller, he's a pastor in Manhattan, and he says about his yearly Easter sermon, he says, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them are deeply, they care deeply about justice for the poor and alleviating hunger and disease and caring for the environment, yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by an accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will ever make any difference? If the resurrection of Jesus happened, however, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour out ourselves for the needs of the world. The resurrection matters. And it makes our life matter. It ought to move us to sh and shape us into radical, countercultural lovers of God and people. The, the truth of the resurrection, it drives us to live and to love the way Jesus lived and loved. That's what we were made for. If Jesus really rose from the dead, and as we've seen, there's good reason to believe that he did. Then this, this real Jesus that we've been discovering over these past months, he can't be ignored. He's not just the dead founder of another religious movement. He is the conqueror of death. The living and powerful king over all humanity. His resurrection, it vindicates everything he ever said. And it gives extraordinary weight to all of his teachings throughout the gospel of Mark. I mean, this, the things Jesus said and did, they're not just nice. They're not just things we can take or leave. They must shape our understanding of our lives and shape our understanding of the world. I mean, it's not just a historical figure saying these things that we've read in, in these, these past weeks. It's not just someone in the past saying these things. It is a living king that is present right here, right now. That is speaking through this gospel. And it's him who says that the kingdom of God is at hand and you must repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. Chapter 1. 
It means that it's true that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that he hasn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Chapter 2. It means that whoever does the will of God really is his brother and his sister and his mother. Chapter 3. It means that we really should beware of the things he warns against and challenges, like the deceitfulness of riches that, and the cares of this world that choke out the word in our lives and having shallow roots so that tribulation and persecution will drive us away from God and the devil who's trying to keep us from faith. All this he warns against in chapter 4. It means it's true and we should beware of these things. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we must beware of being those. I love it in chapter 7, he says, of those who have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. And we must take seriously the idea of what comes out of a person is what defiles him, not what he puts in. Evil things come from within and they defile a person. Chapter 7. It's the risen, living present conqueror and king over death who says if you want to come after him you have to deny yourself take up your cross and follow him for you who would save your life will lose it but you who lose your life for his sake and for the gospels will save it for what does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul What can you give in return for your soul? Chapter 9. And it means that we must be at peace with one another. Chapter 9. It means that if you want to be great, if you want to be great, you really do have to be a servant. And whoever would be first among us must be the slave of all. Because even Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 10. And if you receive a little child in his name, you receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you receive the Father who sent him. Chapter 9. And whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. His resurrection calls us to really believe and have faith in God to act in response to our prayers. And that if we are going to pray, the risen Jesus says that we must forgive anything we have against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your trespasses. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, it means that the greatest commandment, the truly the greatest commandment anyone can obey and everyone is called to, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it means that he poured out his blood not as a victim, but to form a covenant relationship between God and humanity. And his resurrection powerfully presses the same question on us that he pressed on Peter in chapter 8. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? See, we're not just coming to the end of a sermon series or the end of a book. The resurrection is an intervention. You have to reckon with this man, with the real Jesus. 
And he's saying you can't remain the person that you've been. What are you going to let go of? What are you going to rethink? What desires don't line up with his kingdom? How must you change? What commitment must you make? Who is your neighbor that you're called to love? Even those who are hard to love. Or your enemy to forgive. You aren't just called to agree with Jesus. You must be transformed by him. If he can raise his dead, mutilated body out of a tomb, he can change you. I promise you. If you're rebellious and you're living in your own way, Jesus calls you to submit to his reign, not because he's a tyrant, but because he, wants to, he loves you and he wants you to share in his resurrection life. And if you're indifferent and just kind of flippant about Jesus, his resurrection calls you to rethink what you think is important Amen. and to take his claims seriously. Amen. If you're broken and hurting because of this corrupt world, the resurrection, it calls you to hope. Yes, this world is a place where an innocent man is tortured and killed, but it's also those powers that put him in the grave did not get the last word. Amen. God is in control. And Jesus rose from the dead, overcoming it, interjecting this world with a living hope. And he will fully and finally conquer evil and death and tragedy. And he will renew and restore our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, the Bible tells us. And if you are broken by not the world, but by your own sin and rebellion, I want to talk to you most of all. Because Jesus' resurrection means that you can have forgiveness and transformation. You may come here and you may say that you have character flaws so deep that you think change is impossible. But I'm telling you, Jesus rose from the dead. He can transform you and he can offer you forgiveness and new life. He can. There is hope and there is healing with this king who conquered death. So Come. To the risen living Christ. Trust him. Follow him. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Amen. Saved from sin. Saved from death. Saved from judgment. And saved from a life of self-serving hopelessness. The resurrection of Christ is true. And it matters. It's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, you are alive and you're present with us. Awake our hearts to this reality right now. Transform us with your resurrection power. Make us loving. Make us passionate. Make us whole. Make us believe and hope and trust and follow in and through your strength because we don't have it on our own. But you can conquer death so you can conquer our hearts and there is nothing we want more. Come soon, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.